another episode of Style Points. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Aaron Growley about pheochromocytoma. Aaron uh, initially was one of the people who oriented me to my job here at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. This is great. Uh, I am really pleased to talk to you because you have a lot of experience in the perioperative space. Can you talk a little bit more about your experience with that? Sure. So my kind of growth and development through the uh, field of anesthesiology has been a little bit unique. Um, I finished my anesthesia residency and then followed residency up with a fellowship in critical care anesthesia and then uh, cardiac anesthesia. So when I started my practice about eight years ago, um, spent most of my days in the operating room um, or in our ICU, our surgical and cardiovascular ICU. And then really through my experiences, just developed a passion for perioperative medicine and actually became very involved in our um, preoperative anesthesia evaluation clinic um, here at University of Cincinnati. It's called the Center for Perioperative Care. Um, or CPC, how most of us refer to it, and um, became medical director of the CPC for about five years and found that I ended up spending most of my time outside of the operating room rather than inside the walls of the operating room. I was spending most of my time either in the preoperative clinic or in the ICU taking care of patients postoperatively. Um, and really just enjoyed that spectrum of care for patients, being able to see them on the preoperative side of things, um, still being able to manage them in the operating room and then taking care of them in the ICU as well. And um, have really just developed my practice over the last eight years um, to kind of fit that model. And I think why I developed a keen interest in pheochromocytomas and their management perioperatively is because I think all of those um, phases of care are very, very important and um, really can influence the outcome of a patient after a pheochromocytoma resection. So really important um, attention to detail preoperatively and getting them optimized their intraoperative management and um, ongoing diligence postoperatively can lead to a really positive and good outcome for those patients. Well, before we dig into the management of pheochromocytoma, I want to ask you more of a get to know you question. Let's say that you could have dinner with anyone <laughs> in the world. It could even be somebody from the past or from fiction. Who would you have dinner with and why? That's a really good question. Um, interestingly, I think it, it would be Helen Keller and wow. the reason I say that, well, interestingly, I have a, a son who's in grade school and he recently had to do a book report on Helen Keller and I think almost all of us know Helen Keller. She was a woman that grew up in the early 1900s who at a very young age became blind and deaf. And um, 
when my son was doing this book report, it sort of led to him reading an autobiography, which then led to us as a family watching um, a movie about uh, Helen as a young child and all of her um, struggles. So being blind and being deaf, having to kind of live in this very dark, silent world. Um, I can't imagine how kind of lonely and isolated that must feel. But despite that, um, she had the perseverance and um, the strength to kind of overcome that and figure out how to communicate. And not only how to communicate um, and interact with the world, but also to become a leader and an advocate and an author and she's published and she would speak and she was an activist for patients with or people with disability um, with the help of her kind of lifelong teacher, Ann Sullivan. So I'd invite Ann Sullivan to, to that dinner. But um, just to meet somebody that had that kind of strength and perseverance um, would, be, would be amazing. That sounds like it would be very inspiring. What an interesting answer. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Uh, let's start off with pheochromocytoma. For listeners who may not be familiar with what it is at all, could you explain what it is and why it presents unique challenges for us in anesthesia? Sure. So a pheochromocytoma is a neuroendocrine tumor that releases catecholamines. So it's a tumor that develops um, in individuals about 90% of the time it's an isolated tumor um, that presents around the third to fourth decade of life. Uh, more infrequently, about 10% of the time, um, it's a familial or genetic tumor uh, and sometimes even part of the kind of the umbrella of the multiple neuroendocrine neoplasia syndrome, the MEN type two, if you all remember that from medical school. I have to say, I remember studying that as a buzzword for... Yes, exactly. Kind of memory trick to go along with that. Yes, exactly. Um, so pheochromocytomas can be a part of men type two syndrome. Um, but 90% of the time they're an isolated tumor and um, usually 90% of the time arise from the adrenal medulla and they are catecholamine secreting tumors. And a lot of times they are identified in patients that have very malignant or severe hypertension because they either have continuous or episodic release of catecholamines, both norepinephrine and epinephrine. Um, these patients oftentimes present with um, syndromes associated with excess catecholamines. Um, so again, hypertension, sometimes um, kind of diaphoresis, flushing, arrhythmias, um, and even can develop some renal dysfunction. Um, so why this presents challenges for um, anesthesiologists is that you are receiving a patient in the operating room has who has for potentially years, sometimes maybe even decades, um, excess catecholamines and what that does to your physiology and other organ systems um, management can be quite challenging. Absolutely. I have uh, managed a few FIOs in the operating room myself, and I remember each one of them individually. They are certainly cases to be remembered for the uh, vast hemodynamic swings 
uh, that you see. Mm -hmm. So before we get to the operating room, let's talk about uh, what we do for these patients in the preoperative space. Sure. For you and CPC, what does that look like when a patient gets referred to you with FIA? Sure. Um, well, my approach to them on the preoperative side of things kind of fits, I think, three buckets. Um, number one being how effectively is their hypertension managed and optimized. And I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I can't emphasize the importance of this enough. And um, this is usually done on a multidisciplinary level. So once a patient is diagnosed with a pheochromocytoma um, and the decision is made um, that this patient's appropriate for surgical resection, preoperative blood pressure optimization um, usually occurs on a combination of levels. At our institution, it's primarily managed by the patient's endocrinologist. And we're very fortunate at University of Cincinnati to have a great division of endocrinology who are very proactive and aggressive about managing these patients preoperatively. So because these patients, again, have a live in this chronic state of excess catecholamine secretion, they all have um, a state of chronic hypertension. The most important or kind of the initial um, frontline management for hypertension is alpha blockade. And you always want to start with alpha blockade before any type of beta blockade because you don't want unopposed alpha stimulation. So usually the first medication that's introduced to these patients, and this occurs anywhere from about two to four weeks preoperatively, is the initiation of an alpha blockade. Um, and this can occur, or there's a couple of different options, I guess I should say, with regards to alpha blockade. Um, there's a long acting alpha blockade that I think we're probably all familiar with, phenoxybenzamine. Um, it's a long acting medication. It's a once a day medication, so patients are usually compliant with it. The downside of it is that it's not as easily titratable in the outpatient setting. More recently, we're finding it's hard to get insurance approval. So the more short-acting alpha blockers, such as prazosin or doxacin, is actually typically what we're seeing most patients come to us on. Even though those are kind of TID medications, they're more easily titratable. The goal is to titrate those medications to until the patient is normotensive, essentially. And once that patient is normotensive without orthostatic symptoms, I think historically the goal was to titrate these patients um, all the way up to the point that they were getting really orthostatic on an outpatient level. We've found that sometimes that degree of alpha blockade can lead to post-operative um, acute, kidney, acute kidney injury. Um, but at least titrating them to the point that they are normotensive. If we find that um, tachycardia, which can happen with a lot of alpha blockade occurs, then um, initiation of a beta blocker um, as a second agent is also very helpful. 
So when a patient arrives in our pre-op clinic, that's kind of the first and foremost thing that we identify or look to identify is how appropriately is their blood pressure um, managed. And so when they come into the CPC, we're doing obviously vitals, but also orthostatic vitals as well. And if we have concerns about their degree of hypertension or we don't feel like um, they're alpha blocked enough, then we're communicating that back with the surgeon as well as the endocrinologist who's managing them. And it's usually a conversation um, at that point on which medications to titrate to get them appropriately optimized. So really important communication with the endocrinologist and the surgeon preoperatively is important. Um, we find that in our prep clinic, we're kind of like the final checks and balance of that patient um, before they enter the operating room. So having that communication um, is really, really important. So that was kind of one thing in the pre-op clinic, the first kind of aspect that we're looking for and evaluating for the patient. The second really is um, identifying any other comorbidities that can be associated with, again, potentially years, maybe even decade of pretty malignant hypertension. Sure. Um, related to that years of excess hypercatecholamine secretion. So um, a very thorough cardiac evaluation is really important. We, uh, own, we always do an EKG to look for any sort of, sort of arrhythmias um, or ischemic findings on an EKG. Um, a preoperative echocardiogram to look for um, any sort of cardiomyopathy associated with the pheochromocytoma is important. Um, evaluating kidney function, neurologic function, it's not uncommon that some of these patients may have had strokes in the past or developed some chronic kidney disease. And then the third thing we really look at, and this is for every patient coming through the preoperative clinic, is assess assessing functional status and the other comorbidities that we need to address and optimize um, to get the patient through a big abdominal surgery safely. Um, and so those are really kind of the three categories of buckets of things that we evaluate patients for when they come in to our pre-op clinic. I like that you mentioned one of the very typical buzzwords associated, which is the unopposed alpha, and we don't want the unopposed alpha. Can you talk a little bit about what that actually means and what the consequences would be if we decided to ignore that? Sure, that's a great question. So um, a lot of these tumors, like I said, they secrete catecholamines. And the vast majority of them, most of them secrete more norepinephrine than epinephrine. And if you remember back going back to physiology and even pharmacology, norepinephrine is primarily an alpha agonist. Um, epinephrine, you see a little bit more of a balance between alpha and beta agonism. Um, but if you think about what our alpha-1 receptors are doing, they're, when those alpha-1 receptors are stimulated, you see a lot of vasoconstriction. So these patients live kind of in a very chronic vasoconstrictive state, which also leads to a relative volume contraction because you're going to have, if 
those pay, if those blood vessels are constantly vasoconstricted and those patients are hypertensive, you're going to have a decreased amount of salt and water reabsorption at the kidney level. So these patients are dehydrated and very, very clamped down. So when we start an alpha blockade, that's really important to start relaxing those blood vessels. And at the same time, you want to what we call salt expansion. Um, so that when it's done on the outpatient set setting is giving them salt tabs so that they re so that they basically reabsorb um, water, free water at the kidney level to kind of increase their intravascular volume by the time that they reach um, the operating room. If we ignore that concept and let's say as an outpatient started a beta blocker, then potentially you're going to have, um, you're going to block the beta effects, beta one and beta two effects. Um, and then all of a sudden you're going to have an extreme, what we call unopposed alpha stimulation. So a very, very strong vasoconstrictive response and your beta blockers aren't going to necessarily touch that at all. Um, so that can be problematic for the patient. Or if you started them on another agent, like a calcium channel blocker or something like that, you're really not um, addressing the fact that you've got high levels of norepinephrine in the system working on your alpha-1 receptors. Um, so the whole concept of this alpha blockade is actually crucial for the management of these patients because of their high levels of circulating norepinephrine. So you actually wrote the intraoperative protocol uh, pretty recently that we are using for our pheochromocytoma patients. So that makes you a great candidate to answer my next question, <laughs> which is how do we manage these patients when they show up in same-day surgery? Sure. I can't speak to being prepared enough. So the answer to that question is preparation, preparation, preparation. Um, we're going to assume that this patient uh, has been well optimized by their endocrinologist, by the surgeon, and by our pre-op clinic. So they're going to come in on to um, come into the the hospital on the day of surgery. They will have hopefully taken their alpha blockade and their beta blocker. Um, if it's the longer acting phenoxybenzamine, then perhaps we may have them hold it on the day of surgery. But if it's the short acting prazosin, then we'll have them take their alpha blockade and their beta blocker on the morning of surgery. All of these patients get a pre-induction arterial line. We want adequate IV access on these patients. And before you even see these patients in same day surgery, the setup in the operating room is extremely important. Um, this is not a case that you just kind of have some sticks of phenylephrine laying around or maybe some push sticks of nitroglycerin. While you absolutely want those things, we have our plump pumps in the room primed and ready to go with what we call uppers and downers. So um, anti-hypertensives, short-acting, yeah, short fast-onset anti-hypertensive agents, and then... Um, we also have pressors available as well, because um, we can kind of talk about how this surgery, I feel like, is actually two surgeries in one, um, that you have 
the first part of the operation is where you have the tumor intact um, and still have ongoing release of those catecholamines. And then the second half of the procedure is you have, um, once the tumor has been removed, you have a whole second half of the surgery in which you may have an acute drop in your catecholamine levels and you're kind of dealing with the hemodynamic consequences of that as well. Uh, I think the key word in what you just said is may have. I have certainly experienced pheochromocytomas where after resection, the blood pressure plummets and it's dramatic, but I've had other ones that really the blood pressure seems to stay high. And I've actually taken patients to the ICU on downers instead of uppers, as the literature will usually suggest that you need to be on. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about why we don't immediately see a drop in everyone's blood pressure after it's resected? Well, I think you bring up a good point that if you've taken care of one patient with pheochromocytoma, you've taken care of one patient with pheochromocytoma, that they can all present and physiologically act a little bit different. So that's why preparation and being kind of prepared for any extreme is really important. I think one thing that's important to know is that every tumor is a little bit different and you will have tumors that are very high secreting tumors. And those are patients that if they have really, really high levels of metanephrines or norepinephrines preoperatively, those are patients that you may um, experience a, more of a rocky road and they really need um, a lot of attention to preoperative optimization and you may have the really high um, high catecholamine surges with induction and tumor manipulation as the surgeon starts to dissect out the tumor. And with the loss of those very, very high levels of catecholamines after the tumor is removed, those are patients that may become really hypotensive and unstable after tumor removal, especially because we ask them to take their prednisone and their beta blockers preoperatively. Now you have, um, on the other end of the spectrum, some tumors are not as high secreting as before. And so they seem to have a little bit less of those fluctuations. Um, and those patients may remain hypertensive even after removal because they didn't kind of live at a really high catecholamine secreting state. The second thing too is some patients may have underlying chronic hypertension. Um, in addition to their pheochromocytoma that was contributing to their hypertension. So those patients may also not drop too low um, after um, tumor removal. The third thing is, is that really adequate volume resuscitation preoperatively um, and intraoperatively with the salt expansion and volume resuscitation. Um, that should continue intraoperatively as well. So really close attention to volume management um, will also help minimize those really low lows after the tumor is resected. So I think there's a lot of caveats um, and nuances associated with pheochromocytoma management. And as you said, it can actually present quite differently depending on the nature of the tumor. Um, 
and how well the patient was optimized. And there are other comorbidities as well. Now, when I get a patient that comes to same-day surgery and their blood pressure is 210 over 120, a lot of times that's a signal to me that I need to talk to the surgeon about potentially canceling or postponing a case. What if one of these patients comes to same-day surgery and they have a blood pressure that is sky high? Is this a patient that you would consider going forward with as opposed to a standard patient? Or uh, what's your approach to that sort of situation? Sure, that's a great question. In pheochromocytoma patients, if a patient presented to same-day surgery with malignant pressures like this, I would one, want to verify, did they take their home medications, their alpha blocker, their beta blocker, or any other, other antihypertensive medications that were prescribed? If they did, and their blood pressure is that high, then that's an indication to me that this patient isn't appropriately optimized, and I would be having a conversation with the surgeon about canceling the case um, and seeing if we can get the patient optimized. Occasionally, um, I've, if they've come in and they've told me that they haven't taken any of their home medications, um, well then I'll give them medications and in same-day surgery, give it about an hour, sometimes two hours, if we have the ability to delay the case that long and see if the blood pressures come down. Um, but because we know that in this procedure, there's is such a risk for extreme hypertension with tumor tumor manipulation. Um, blood pressures starting off on that extreme are really quite scary. And we've had a couple of patients that for various reasons um, have come in with pressures that high and we have elected to cancel the case and take a different approach for those patients coming in for surgery. And I can think of one case that occurred maybe about three or four months ago um, who it was a patient who wasn't English speaking and actually the language that they did speak was very hard to get a translator for. And so um, the medical translation happened through one of the patient's relatives. So I think a lot of the medical communication got lost in translation. So I don't think the patient was as optimized as they should have been or could have been. Sure. Um, and there was just so many factors that went into that. So ultimately, with conversations between the endocrinologist, the surgeon, and the anesthesiologist, when we had that experience of the patient showing up to same-day surgery with malignant range pressures, we decided to cancel the case. And when we came back to actually do the case a second time, we pre-admitted the patient to the hospital um, a day before surgery. Actually, it might have been two days before surgery. Make sure they really got volume expansion through IV fluids. We're able to really carefully titrate their medications um, while being closely monitored in an inpatient setting. And ultimately, the patient had a very successful um, surgery and resection and very positive outcomes. But I think it kind of highlighted the need to um, kind of come up with some creative solutions for these patients um, to really get them optimized and how important that is. That makes a lot of sense. So let's uh, talk for a little bit about creating your battle station in the operating room. Mm -hmm. You said you mentioned having uppers and downers. 
And I know that there's a lot of room for a lot of different types of medications to be used here. What would you personally choose in a patient that you're pretty concerned about? Sure. So let's talk about, I guess, our downers first, because in the operating room, those are potentially the first medications that you're going to need. In the room, spiked on a pump, I usually have two downers. Uh, at our institution, we have the availability of clovidipine, which is a relatively new um, diphenhydramine calcium channel blocker that is very short acting and very rapid onset and very easily titratable. So my personal preference is clovidipine along with uh, nitroprusside, are agents that I have spiked, um, ready to go, ready to start infusing in the patient. In addition to that, we have push doses of um, nitroglycerin available as well. I also have on the flip side, because again, after the tumor is resected, I wanna have pressors available. Sure. And the two pressors that we will commonly use is norepinephrine or levofed and vasopressin. I'll have both of those medications spiked and ready to go. In addition to push doses of epinephrine and phenylephrine and norepinephrine, if we need it for um, kind of a quick boost in the blood pressure while the infusions kind of get to a steady state. So those are the medications that I have spiked ready to go. I usually have two fluid sets set up. Um, I mentioned I always usually, or not almost usually, always do a pre-induction A-line for these patients. So your pressure tubing for an A-line. If I'm worried about cardiomyopathy in these patients, I will also do a non-invasive cardiac output monitor. We use a Visualeo or FlowTrack here to help um, kind of really guide fluid management for these patients. There can also be fluctuations with the patient's blood glucose. There could be kind of a surge of insulin with tumor manipulation, and there can be some hypoglycemia followed by hyperglycemia. So I have an insulin infusion, but I also have dextrose available. Um, the whole case is like a tale of two cities. You have, that's why I say it's two operations in one where you have a very kind of shifting um, physiologic experience at the beginning of the case than you have at the end of the case. Um, and so, emphasizing preparedness for both of those situations. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. So what would be your approach if during the surgery, they're working with their instruments, you're watching what they're doing on the screen, and all of a sudden uh, you see massive hemodynamic shift on the monitor, you see crazy hypertension spikes up to 250. What's your first move there? Communication. Uh, communicate with your surgeon what's going on. They're going to be obviously very hyper-focused on their surgical technique and quick removal of the tumor. So telling them what's going on. A lot of times if they're at a place in their surgery or their resection where they can stop and let things settle out, they'll do that. So once you identify it, alert the surgeon and then initiate basically your antihypertensive agency agents, um, either by infusion or push dose, usually a combination of both. 
until you can kind of get the patient stabilized toward normotensive range. And then they can again start their resection and tumor manipulation. And hopefully at this point, now that you have some antihypertensive circulating in the system, you won't have such a profound hypertensive response to surgical manipulation. So communication is really, really important in these cases. One thing that you also mentioned before was having adequate IV access on these patients. And something that we've talked about before when you were writing the protocol was whether or not to put a central line in these patients. What do you think? Should we put a central line in every single one of these patients? I think the bigger question is, who needs a central line ever? <laughs> sure. So when you think of the reasons why somebody might need a central line, obviously number one is adequacy of IV access. So if you have a patient come in who's got great peripheral IV targets where you can feel like you can get two or more large bore IVs, and I'm talking about 16, gauge, 14 gauge um, IVs, then your patient may not need a central line. You want um, enough access to um, give large volume of fluids rapidly if you need to, transfusion if you need to. You want a reliable IV for your IV infusions. And this is kind of Think the crux of the question and every institution might be a little bit different and every provider might feel a little bit differently. If there's a possibility that I have to run a presser at the end of the case, norepinephrine or vasopressin, again I want a large bore IV um, that I can do that safely with. I know that potentially I'm not going to be doing that for an extended period of time. I know that I'm as a provider one-on-one -on -one with this patient, so I can kind of continually assess the adequacy of that IV. I want to make sure I can see that IV. So um, if the patient's arms are tucked or someplace that I can't visibly assess that IV, I might be more hesitant um, to allow pressors to run through the IV. Um, but if I have a situation in which I've got great IV access, um, I think that the duration of infusion um, isn't going to be terribly long, and I can see and assess that IV for a patency, then I feel comfortable doing this procedure with peripheral IVs. Now on the flip side, um, if any of those scenarios aren't met, then I have a very, very low threshold for putting in a central line. And I think most of our colleagues, to be honest with you, would just go to a central line like 100% of the time on these patients. Um, at our institution, most of our ICUs, especially our surgical ICUs, um, will not run pressors through a peripheral IV. So even if I have a patient where I've managed them intraoperatively um, with pressors, relatively low dose pressors through a peripheral IV, if at the end of the case they still require those, I will put in a central line before bringing them to the ICU. So I want to say that you can do a pheochromocytoma case without a central line, but with an asterisk um, and understanding that those are the, the caveats. Um, and that 
Also, if you feel like you need a central line for hemodynamic monitoring, if you want to monitor a CVP, then obviously a central line is another reason, um, or doing that is another reason to put in a central line. That makes a lot of sense. I, I definitely agree with you that it's uh, certainly up to the provider, but I think most of the time, most of us will put in a central line, but I can imagine some exceptions as well. Mm -hmm. Moving on to the ICU, mm -hmm. uh, we drop off this patient, and uh, some of us who don't work in the ICU, like myself, would forget about them forever. Not really. Uh, what kind of management would you be doing in the ICU afterwards for these patients? Sure. Well, if they have that very classic traditional response of hypotension and vasoplegia post-tumor removal, then it's just going to be close management of their blood pressure and their pressors. That can sometimes last for up to 24 hours. Um, but again, as you said, there are patients that come out even hypertensive and you're titrating your, your downer, so to speak. So blood pressure, ongoing blood pressure management is really the crux of their care over the next 24 hours. I mentioned to um, glucose management, it can be wildly variable. They can kind of have this rebound hyperinsulin response where they get hypoglycemic and may end up on a dextrose infusion. That's very possible as well. So these patients continue to require a ton of vigilance over the next 24 hours postoperatively. And once they kind of have leveled out to the point where you can kind of get them off all of these like vasoactive drips, so to speak, then the really the next step is from a kind of a longer blood pressure management standpoint. These patients don't require their alpha blockade anymore. Some of them may require nothing for blood pressure management as an outpatient. Some of them, again, have some underlying chronic essential hypertension that they will need ongoing management of. So figuring out where that patient settles into is important. And that occurs days, weeks, even months postoperatively. So not only just in the ICU um, is that important, but close follow-up even after the patient's left the hospital to figure out how this patient's blood pressure is going to be managed on an ongoing basis. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, to wrap up, uh, I wonder if you could share with us some of your personal style points, particular things that you do that you think believe contribute to your effectiveness, success in the operating room. Um, kind of unrelated pheochromocytoma management, sure. just like a general approach that I take in my career, whether I'm in the operating room or I'm in the ICU or I'm in our pre-op clinic. And I would give this advice to every young clinician out there is it's not enough to identify problems either with a patient or the system or your environment, you have to identify solutions. For you to be an effective clinician and for you to earn the respect of your colleagues, of surgeons, of hospital administrators, wherever your career may lead you, an effective way of doing that is taking the next step is to find a solution to whatever problem that you're dealing with. 
and proposing that. Now, it has to be within your sphere of influence. You don't want to walk around telling everybody else how you think they should be doing their jobs. I'm glad you said that. (laughs) (laughs) But if it's within your sphere of influence and you identify a problem with a system or an environment that you're working in, then think about how to make it better. It's not like you said, you want to be the person that, you know, curses the darkness or lights the match. So um, find a solution and work with the people around you to make your, to make patient care safer, to make work a more enjoyable place um, for everybody to improve efficiency. Um, And I think that's probably the kind of the number one thing that I could, advice I could give to young clinicians is it's not just enough identifying a problem. It's living and owning your kind of world, your patients, and the environment that you work in to create a better system. Well, Aaron, thank you much, so much for joining us. Uh, I am really pleased that you agreed to come on as guest. I know that myself and many of the department members that I talk to think of you as a big sister to the whole department. Uh, you certainly bring uh, a lot of uh, your own uh, personality and style to the operating room, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Thanks so much for having me, John. This has been awesome. And that's it for today's episode of Style Points. Remember, every time you like and subscribe, an anesthesiologist gets their legs. I'm still finding my feet in the podcast world, so any feedback you give me is great. Email it to stylepointspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.